So one of my favorite books in the Bible, as the youth group has <clears throat> often heard me say, is First Peter. And Peter resonates with me uh, not just in relatability as a person, uh, but in how he speaks to his audience as exiles in a foreign land. Now, as many of you know, I have experience being a literal foreigner, uh, living in cultures uh, where the people around me were different from me. You know, my family moved relatively frequently uh, from, from place to place and from country to country. And the more we did that, the more pronounced my differences began to feel. There was a sense of, uh, of foreignness and a lack of belonging that grew in me. And what it did is it actually caused me to naturally then gravitate toward um, my family. Um, people who, who I knew shared my differences and understood my struggles. So home, the place that I belonged, ended up not being my house, because we moved too much for that, too often for that. It wasn't the people or the society that I was surrounded by. There was never really enough time to really mesh into that society. Home was my family. It was my brothers and my sisters, my mother and my father. Wherever they were, there was support, there was love, there was encouragement, and there was shared purpose and faith. We did life together, and they were my priority under God, and I was theirs. And it was them, it was my home, that sustained me by God's grace <clears throat> through many years and difficulties. Now, I think we can see some parallels between, uh, between my experience and between the experience of the people uh, Peter's writing to in his letter in First Peter. He, he's not just speaking to individuals who are off on their own, somewhere. He's, he's using plural form. He's speaking to a community, to a family of people who were foreigners together in a temporary residence, mutually distinct, sharing purpose and identity, and doing life together in such a way that they became what, what Karen Jobes calls in her commentary on First Peter, a Christian colony in a strange land. A colony that provided an entirely new social context of support and relationship and orthopraxy that, that helped its members, the members of the colony, to refrain from conforming to the patterns of the world and to remain markedly distinct from the cultural practices of the time that ran contrary to the will of God. And through their difference from the culture, through their shared conduct and testimony, the world as we know, ended up being changed in remarkable ways. Now fast forward to, uh, to present day. Now, Peter's words, still true. The Christian status and calling in the world, unchanged. The culture, still wicked, but has rejected God wholesale and has been given over, almost entirely over, to a debased and depraved mind. We don't need to look too hard to find examples of that. We are in an idolatrous culture, one where worship of the Creator has, has been replaced with worship of politicians and athletes and actors, where things like uh, gadgets and hobbies and collections and, and houses have been idolized, 
and careers idolized. And at the very, very peak of this Babel, at the, the pinnacle of man's depravity and pride, we find the worship of self. Worship that's seen most clearly, I think, in the pursuit of comfort and consumption. I mean, all around us, right, is, is a race for the newest, for the fanciest, uh, the shiniest, the most attention-grabbing, the most comfortable things, clamoring after it. This culture promotes jumping from one indulgence to another, committing less and less to anything of substance and worth. Interests and desires grow harder to satisfy. Attention spans shrink. The ability to be still and to abide with the simplicity of scarcity and the calm of, of creativity and thankfulness has been replaced with an insatiable desire for instant gratification and indulgence of whatever fleshly passion comes at the moment. And all this is often at the cost of morality, at the cost of responsibility and relationships. You know, the, the sacrifices of infants to Moloch in the land of Canaan pale in comparison to what's happening in this country now, where hundreds of thousands of children are being sacrificed each year in the name of self and in the denial of consequence, responsibility, and self-control. Selfishness and greed have caused the family structure to collapse, communities to shrink, and things like grace and love and compassion and care for the people around us have given way to what amounts to a radical individualism and a me-first mentality that's proving devastatingly destructive to the moral and social fiber of this country. And it's in the middle of all this decay and nastiness and, and human failure that the Christian is still supposed to be a foreigner, standing out and going against the flow. The community of believers is designed to provide, again, a new context, a new way of living, a different way of life, and a support system by which to help each other resist engaging in all those kinds of practices. Again, they're just so contrary to the will of God. We're supposed to be a colony of light in the darkness, filled with people together, brothers and sisters together, who share common goals and values and purpose, all the while looking expectantly for the king's return and the making right of all this brokenness. Distinct, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 6.14. That's the name of the game, distinction. Righteousness distinct from lawlessness. Light from darkness. And as the culture grows louder and more oppressive, and as its traits become more and more pronounced, those lines of distinction should be growing bolder. And the contrast should be growing starker. But the opposite seems to be happening. Where the average Christian's lifestyle in this country shows no real evidence of belief in anything beyond the immediate, beyond the here and now. We speak like the rest of society. We act the same. We indulge in the same vices. We consume the same things. We worship many of the same gods. We operate with the same convictions or, or lack thereof. We run as fast as anyone else from discomfort, scarcity, a concept of self-deprivation, 
We hate the idea of, of sacrifice, and we shrink back at the notion of inconvenience. We're irritated by conviction and accountability. We don't want our lifestyles or tastes to be called out, even if we know that those things may not be in line with the Word of God. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, the distinction between us and the world is fading. And much of this, I think, stems from what is the most damaging reality of all, and that's that we have turned inward. We have turned into ourselves, and we have embraced the same radical and self-focused individualism and consumerism that the culture promotes. In churches today, we have pew upon pew filled with incidental Christians who treat the very notion of faith and community as insignificant fringe aspects of their lives, meant to be pulled out maybe once a week for the easing of conscience or for the fulfillment of some selfish need and then put back on a shelf to collect dust with the other old hobbies and interests. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy have become compartmentalized and relegated to maybe a couple hours on Sunday mornings and then pushed aside to make room for that which is deemed more important or more real. What's happening is that church members are by and large becoming uh, consumers who insist on their whims being met and who jump from community to community to community, you know, trying to find the perfect services, the perfect amenities. And this leaves the church essentially being treated like no more than a commodity to be discarded if it doesn't meet expectations uh, or entertainment demands, which in turn has led the church once a bastion against conforming to the world to uh, try and compete for the increasingly limited attention span of its attendees. You know, in a, in a Satan-distorted mockery of Christ's words in Matthew 4.19, church communities have indeed become fishers of men, battling each other to create the loudest, flashiest, trendiest bait to keep the fish on the hooks. We may not even realize it yet, but the culture has in so many ways breached the walls and the colony is crumbling from within. Christ is no longer at the center and his body has been pushed out and is increasingly disconnected joint from joint. And here's the thing. He is coming back. He's coming back to claim his bride. The finish line is in sight and... The Western church isn't going to make it. She isn't going to be prepared for his return without substantial change. And I think, I think that the change actually begins with, with us. With a, uh, first of all, a personal and then a corporate repentance and a restoration of perspective and appreciation for the role and the reality of the church in the life of the Christian and that begins with each one of us, first of all, asking ourselves, okay, how essential, how essential is my belief to my life? And depending on how you answer that, in light of that belief, well, then what is the church? And how important of a role should it play? Is it going to be a, a compartmentalized little side note in our existence? Or is it something that deserves a place of rightful precedence under and alongside Christ's lordship in our lives. 
So to help answer that, um, let's go back to some of the basics of the church and consider together what it is exactly that we are a part of here together. The simplest answer, right off the bat, is to understand what the church is not. Uh, the church is not a former vending machine factory. Okay, it's not a building. Um, this facility, when it's empty, is not a church. It's not a location, it's not an institution or a denomination, despite how that word is often used. And most of all, most importantly, the church is not an event that you attend. And it is not a source of entertainment. It's not some sort of ritual that happens and then we go home. The church is family. It's your family. Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica defines family as uh, groups of persons united by one or more of three things. Uh, blood, marriage, or adoption. And the scripture makes it clear that the church is the adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual family. And as Grudem puts it, it's the community of all true believers for all time. It's all of whom, Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved and gave himself up for. This family is the temple and the people of God. It's the body of Christ. It's alluded to as the bride of Christ, the branches of the vine. It's a new group of priests and a new temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus. The church is God's house. It's his home with Jesus himself, the builder of that house. It's visible and invisible. The invisible is the church as God sees it. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, is those who the Lord knows are his. I think Francis Schaeffer uh, described the invisible church in this helpful way. His quote's on the screen behind me. He says, The invisible church is the body of believers united by faith in Christ in the full biblical sense. This includes the church today, people who are alive today, who are currently at war and in exile in this present world, and those who have fought the good fight and are now in peace waiting for the resurrection. The invisible church is the church universal, the church Jesus spoke of in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, I will build my church. It's also the church the author of Hebrews referred to in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, speaking of the unity of the body, of all believers, of all times and places. In contrast, then, the visible church would be immediate and present. Okay? It spans the globe today, it's regional, and it's also local. So take a moment and look to your left and to your right. Look at the people around you, the people sitting next to you. This group of God's people, this community that operates under scriptural authority and instruction and in fellowship, this is the visible local church. And as Erickson calls it, it's one of the few visible forms of corporate relationship among believers. And there are plenty of passages that help illustrate this kind of relationship, this kind of community for us, but one of the best examples we can look at, I think, is in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So can we turn there together in our Bibles? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. 
And here we read of those who received Peter's, uh, Peter and the apostles' words, those who believed and were baptized. And we see that they formed a community. And within this community, they did a number of things. They devoted or they committed themselves. I want you to pay attention to that word committed. It's going to come back more than a few times today. To the apostles' teaching, to scripture, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and praying together. They shared with each other, we're told. They worshipped together regularly, if not daily. They shared food together with glad and generous hearts. And they evangelized and they ministered together in an often hostile culture. Now, this is only one reference of many, uh, biblical and extra-biblical, of the early church. But in this passage in particular, there is, there's a sweet imagery we can see of the formation of a Christian colony in a strange land. You, know, you have believers who are working together, who are committed to each other. What, what is committed, by the way? Okay, it's more, most commonly defined as being dedicated and loyal to a cause. It's to be wholeheartedly dedicated to something. So these people were committed to each other. They were wholeheartedly dedicated to each other and to the common cause of fulfilling Christ's purpose and mission for his bride. So to this end, they strengthened each other. They encouraged each other. By all accounts, they functioned as a family, brothers and sisters adopted into God's household. And I want to reiterate, the level of devotion to Christ and to his church, by all accounts, was a daily affair. Now you hold... You hold this up with the rest of Scripture, and it seems to be very clear that the church was and is always meant to be a focal point and a priority in the life of the believer. You know, one of the most important, centermost aspects of their lives. And I don't think that's a, a um, I don't think that's a bold or outrageous statement to make, especially when you consider the level at which scriptures hold up the church. First of all, the Bible makes it clear that the church is God's family. Okay, I know we've already established this, but it deserves reiteration. These people around you right now are members of God's household. They have, 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, <clears throat> been, <clears throat> excuse me, been born again according to God's great mercy, born into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and born into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Ephesians 2.3 says that by natural birth, we were children of wrath. We were born under judgment. But John tells us we've been given a new and a supernatural birth, and that all who receive in Jesus and believe in his name are no longer children of wrath, but children of God, members of God's family. And 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that this family, this household of God, is the church, a pillar and a foundation of truth. So understand this with me. The family of God, these people around you right now, this is God's household. That makes it more important than any government, any institution, any group, anything in your life. From before the foundation of the world, God had this family in mind. He had you in mind. Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. We'll be in Ephesians for most of the rest of the, the day. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 
from before the foundation of the world, God had this family in mind. It's also on the screen behind me if you want to follow there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now do me a favor and put from your minds any discussion on election right now, okay? Instead, I want you to just consider with me, consider with me, the central role of the church from the beginning of time, from before time. That before the foundation of the world, before creation itself, God's first and primary purpose was to create a people for himself. People like those around you this very minute who would live with him holy and blameless. The second century literary piece, The Shepherd of Hermas, just kind of comes out and says it right there. The world was made for the sake of the church. Now, we might choose to phrase that a bit more carefully or a bit differently, but we can certainly say this, that God, before the beginning of time, thought about a people. He thought about you and I that he would adopt as his family, people who would be brothers and sisters in his household. If we read a little further in the passage to verses 9 in 10, we see that the church has been the focal point of God's universal will, part of his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Someday, everywhere, as far as the eye can see and beyond, there will be the family of God. There will be the church, living before the Father in holy and perfect love, brothers and sisters dwelling together in perfect unity. A concept the psalmist speaks of almost longingly in Psalm 133. And we're, we're a part of it now already. Citizens of a better country being used for God's purposes. We're a part of it now. Waiting for the new heavens and for the new earth. For the final and glorious reunification of the universal church from the beginning of time to the present to the future. Before the throne of God. How amazing is that? How amazing that we are a part of this awesome process. Continuing through Ephesians, we get to chapter 3, where we read that God's intention and purpose is that through the church, through this, his wisdom will be made known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's plan for all time involves the church, involves what we are a part of here. And the church is the only thing on earth that's going to last. You know all this talk about global warming, yes? Uh, there's conversations about what's going to happen, and there's panic about how we're going to prevent it and fix it, and what we have to do. Well, I, you know, I don't know for sure how we're going to go about fixing and preventing global warming, but I do know how it's going to end no matter what. 
2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The first heaven and the first earth, Revelation 21.1, tell us, will pass away. Isaiah 40.15, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, regarded by God as dust on the scales, to be blown away. But the church will last. Ephesians is a rich letter, and if we continue on in chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we see these words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. For how long? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The church is the redeemed. One body. The outworking of God's purposes on earth. And through all ages, now and into eternity, we'll ascribe to God glory, honor, and dominion. We are part of the eternal process right now. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says that he will build his church and the powers of hell will not be able to conquer it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, one day when Christ returns, we'll be called up together with him in the air to meet the Lord. We, the church, together with the Lord, forever. The church will succeed and it will remain eternally to be presented to Christ as a beautiful bride and to rule with him forever. Let's recap. So what you are a part of here right now is God's family. It's part of God's plan and design for the world from before creation. It's the only thing on earth now that's going to succeed and last. And if that's not enough, if all that's not enough, Christ died for the church. Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that we could be sanctified. If you ever wonder how much a person cares about something, ask yourself if they'd be willing to die for it. If you ever wonder how much value someone places on something, ask how much they'd be willing to pay. If they'd be willing to pay their life for it. Christ died for the church, for you and for me. He gave his life up for the church so that he might present us to himself in splendor, holy and without blemish. The church is God's family. It's part of his plan. It's the only thing on earth now that's going to succeed. And Christ placed so much value, love, and priority on it that he died for it. Is it, any, is it any stretch then to say that the greatest privilege of your life is to be a part of this? To be able to say that you are a member of God's family, that you've been adopted into this household as his child. You know, our, our culture elevates fleeting and trivial identities that come to nothing. There's gender, sexual orientation, athleticism, hobbies, musical skills, whatever. But the church, and the church alone, bears the mark of the only lasting, great, and worthy identity. Being part of God's family. Sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. Do we operate in full appreciation and recognition of that? 
in May of uh, 2017, there was a group of Egyptian Christians who were traveling uh, to a monastery to worship together. It was a long trip, and at an isolated place in the desert, this group of Christians was ambushed, and Islamic militants boarded the bus they were on and began to separate Muslims from the Christians. And by the accounts of those who survived, the Christians were given two opportunities to relinquish their identity in Christ and to discard their membership in God's family. <clears throat> First, they were told to uh, prove they were Muslims by reciting an Islamic creed. If they refused to do so or were unable to do so, thus outing themselves as Christians, they were then given an opportunity to renounce their faith. Two chances. Two chances to discard their eternal identity. Two chances to deny Christ, to reject Christ, for the sake of whatever else beside him they held dear. But they did not. And many, including children, went to their death in this way, viewing membership in God's family as something far too precious to give up. And they're not alone in their testimony. <clears throat> All around the world, there are Christians who have weighed the cost of their faith. We talk about them here often who have kept their faith centermost in their lives and have chosen to identify with and be a part of Christ's body and have paid the price for it. Places of meeting destroyed, homes burned, <clears throat> imprisonment, sorry, <clears throat> man, <clears throat> imprisonment, torture, and death. It's a long legacy of saints who rested in Christ and scorned the pains of his world. And if this testimony and the history of the church of which we are a part does nothing else, it should inspire us to consider our own circumstances a little more closely. To evaluate whether we could be ready to give up just a little bit more. To embrace a little bit more sacrifice. To show a little thicker skin and greater resolve in our mission. If nothing else, I hope that their testimony could motivate us not just to view Christ as the most important, valuable, important and valuable thing in our lives, but also to view his body, Christ's body, the church, no longer as a commodity or a venue through which to be entertained or as something to consume and then discard, but as something that is centermost in our lives and of the highest value. To the point, dare I say, of even being worth dying for, as Christ did before us. Think about for a minute what those Egyptian Christians were doing out there in the wilderness in the first place. They're not fools. They knew that path was dangerous. They were traversing an obviously dangerous area, knowing they were at significant risk, and they did so simply to worship together in community. If you'd believe it, a year after this attack, in 2018, another group of Christians traveled the same road, died in the exact same spot, doing the exact same thing, just a year after this first attack. Undeterred by the danger and determined to worship 
together despite the risk, recognizing the value of what they were a part of, recognizing the importance of committed community to which we've all been called. Okay, so can you imagine then um, knowing that when you went to fellowship on Sunday, when you came out here to uh, worship alongside each other, that you and your family could, realistically speaking, lose your lives for it? Or that by going to meet fellow believers in town, going to have a dinner with other Christians, or partaking in some church activity, you could be killed or imprisoned? Would any of us leave the home? And yet here we are with, at the moment, no real risk to life or limb, no substantial cost for living and practicing our faith in community, and we have a hard time even getting here on Sunday mornings, let alone approaching life and community in a Christocentric, church-centric manner. Oh, I, I don't want to go to church this morning. It's a lot of work to get the family ready, to get there on time. My schedule's too busy. I'm tired. It's probably going to be boring. I don't like the person teaching today. This sermon series is a drag. These seats are uncomfortable. I had an argument with someone once. I don't want to see them. The pastor was rude to us once. Every Sunday. Every Sunday the pastor is rude to us. We don't fit in there. We don't feel welcome. Not enough people talked to me last time. Too many people talked to me last time. They don't have enough programs. We can do better. We're a part of something so much greater than all that. We are a part of such a higher calling and purpose. And it's time for us to shake the dregs of this culture off and to live up to the standard to which we've been called and set apart. To let go of the noise and to cling <clears throat> to God and to his people. Cling to his family, our family. I mean, this is it. There's no practice. There's no do-over. We are in the real time. And this around us right now, God's church, is all that will last. All that will succeed. So let's start, you know, if we're not already, let's start waking up every day and asking ourselves, how can I be a part of building a strong social context of support and relationship and right practice for my church, for my family? How can I be a part of building a robust community that will help us all refrain from conforming to the noise around us and to remain distinct from the culture around us? How can I be a part of that? How can I be involved in worshiping and glorifying God alongside the church today? What can I do to build this colony? We've got to do away with the individualism and consumerism that snuck in and recognize that we need the church. We need the church strong. We need each other. We are individual sheep with responsibilities, yes, but we are also part of a flock with one shepherd. We're limbs and organs of the body of Christ. And Paul makes it clear time and time again that we cannot separate ourselves from the rest of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This isn't to say that our personal relationship with God doesn't come first. It does, but it cannot stop there. 
The correct relationship with God, first of all, is as individuals, but then as a group, we function together essentially for the purpose at hand. We are, as Wendell called it a few months ago, an every-member ministry. Okay, we're not a Wendell and Josh ministry. We're not just a deacon and elders of some church ministry. We're not a just-on-Sunday ministry. We are every day, every moment, every member, living in a reality together, brothers and sisters and family in a foreign land, experiencing the great gift and privilege of being a part of Christ's body and living out his command in John 15, 12, to love one another. We can't do much else in obedience, guys, if we're failing out the gate with one of his most important and all-encompassing commands. So I encourage you um, in the next week, in the next days, to go back and listen to Pastor Wendell's Every Member Ministry series and listen to it with renewed ears. And remember, as he said in those messages, that when you walk into this room on Sunday mornings, I want you to look at the people around you. When you wake up in the morning, every day of the week, I want you to think of these people that you are doing life with, that you are building a colony with, and say to yourself, these are the people I belong to. And they belong to me. And I am committed to them, wholeheartedly devoted to them. And together we have a mission. We have an everyday, every man mission to rebuild and to fortify this colony. That it would remain a strong lighthouse in the gathering storm. And a beautiful bride, ready to welcome our king when he comes. May it be so. Well, thank you, Josh, for um, that exhortation, admonishment, warning, encouragement, um, to which, of course, I would give a hearty amen, 10,000 times 10,000 amens. Um, very much appreciate that. The, you know, this last century, we've had churches that have kind of wavered in their commitment to um, the doctrine of sin and the need for Christ's atonement, we've often have referred to these as trying to adopt a crossless Christianity. And then that kind of led into churches that didn't even see the need for Christ as being unique and um, just one of many, and that kind of led into a, a um, Christless Christianity. But today what we battle among evangelicals is a churchless Christianity. And um, none, of this, none of this works. It just goes against everything in Scripture. In fact, most of the books written in the New Testament are written to churches. So if nothing else, that shows, the um, even aside from the verses that Josh brought out, the significance and the, and the centralness of God's plan with the church. And it's, um, I, came, I think I played it for you a number of years ago. There's a country western song by Tom Hall. How many like Tom Hall? This is the most disturbing song. No one's ever heard of Tom Hall? Am I the only one that likes country? I don't like all country western music, but he has a song just so maddening, Me and Jesus. Remember that song? And it's, it's all about tearing down the idea that you need other people, that you need an institution, that you need a church family. It is just literally me and Jesus, and that's the whole theme of the song. And it, it, it represents a lot of the mentality that we're dealing with today, and it's found here at times. 
I just, um, you know, the, oh, we could go on. I don't want to redo the sermon. So let's stand, and I will just close with these words that Josh referred to earlier in Ephesians. Uh, ponder them as we use that as a doxology here or as a benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his powers at work within us, and to him be glory in the church, and to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name. Enjoy each other and serve each other in love.